Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, beloved, by this point in the Gospel, according to St. Luke, it becomes clear things are beginning to get a little out of hand. For we've seen Jesus heal, teach, preach, exercise, interact with people up to this point. But now in chapter 10, he's beginning to recruit. He's beginning to mobilize. He appoints 72, we're told in the first verse of Luke chapter 10, and sends them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. This isn't just an itinerant preacher in Poduck, Galilee, and the Twelve anymore. This is 72 emissaries, 72 mini-apostles, 72 prophets like little Jonahs sent to their respective Ninevehs, each sent ahead in anticipation of the arrival of the Messiah himself. It's one thing to go out into the desert by yourself and tussle with the devil, It's quite another to begin amassing a force to invade Satan's territory. Jesus of Nazareth, we're beginning to see, seems to be in earnest. I came to cast fire on the earth, he says later in Luke 12, and would that it were already kindled. If I were a Roman governor or part of the temple elite, I would begin to think that this Galilean was getting out of his depth a bit that maybe he was biting off more than he could chew, that this would not end well for him. But our Lord does not seem to share any of these concerns for whatever reason, it seems. And by way of preparation, we see in the verses leading up to this mass heralding of the kingdom of God in chapter 9, that Christ is careful, before he sends them out, to lay the groundwork for the vocation of these laborers in his harvest. He demonstrates, as we'll see throughout our time in uh, chapters 9 and 10 of, of Luke's gospel, that in our ministry, as laborers in his harvest, we must always, always return to the heart of the gospel, which is the heart of our Savior. Beloved, in our ministry... As laborers in his harvest, we must always return, return to the heart of the gospel, which is the heart of our Savior. So I would draw your attention to Luke chapter 9, if you have a a copy of God's word there with you. We see there that he begins this foundation work, as one might expect, with the rock upon which he will build his church. St. Peter in his confession in chapter 9, verse 10, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, that is, the anointed one, the Messiah of God. But much to Peter's shock and disbelief, the Lord informs him upon his good confession, and indeed all who would follow him, 
that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Well, that strikes Peter as weird. (laughs) And not just weird, St. Peter seems to act like it's almost irresponsible. For we see in Matthew 16 and Mark 8 that Peter takes Jesus aside to rebuke him after he says this. To which Jesus famously responds, Get behind me, Satan. It seems to me that your movement is getting off to a rough start if you're convinced you'll be dead soon and you call your right-hand man Satan. It's shaky footing to begin with. But our Lord even doubles down. Do you see this? He says that if anyone, anyone would come after him, let him deny himself and take up a cross daily and follow him. But then he assures them, and this is about a week before he, is, he goes on the Mount of Transfiguration, that there are some standing there who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So the groundwork of the vocation of these laborers is threefold. First, Jesus is the Christ. Second, Christ and those who follow him deny themselves and carry crosses, tools of execution. And third, somehow the kingdom of God is in the midst of all this. Jesus is the Christ. Christ and those who follow him deny themselves and carry crosses. And somehow the kingdom of God is in the midst of this. We see time and again there's this link between the suffering of the Christ and the kingdom of God. This groundwork, however, is apparently so hard to receive and understand that we see Jesus constantly repeating himself saying quite forcibly, for example, in verse 44 of Luke 9, let these words sink into your ears. He's like, listen to me. (laughs) The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And even, you see later in Luke 9, when Christ, it says Christ sets his face for Jerusalem, which we know that's where his passion is. He sets his face for Jerusalem, and he hits a roadblock in Samaria. They don't want him to pass through. We see two-thirds of his inner circle, James and John, request permission to rain fire down on the Samaritans. They weren't quite getting it. (laughs) Hadn't they heard in synagogue the prophet Isaiah, who says in Isaiah 66, verse 18, the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and shall see my glory. They shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Yahweh's project had always been to bless all the nations of the earth and the offspring of Abraham. We know this from Genesis 22 18. And what a blessing he has prepared for those who love him, a blessing for all the nations, as we heard in our Old Testament reading. Isaiah 66, verse 12. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her, that's Jerusalem, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced on her knees as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. 
you shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. So I hope the significance of Jerusalem begins to become clear to you. Christ sets his face for Jerusalem. Jerusalem becomes the location of salvation, not only for Judah, but for all the nations of the world. Our Lord has a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is his distress until it is accomplished. But Jerusalem is not to be invaded as by military conquest. Yahweh is not yet to show his enemies the edge of his sword, but rather submits to the blade himself. For he did not come to be served, beloved, but to serve. Did not come to be served, but to serve, if you can believe it. And to give his life, his life, as a ransom for many. Thus, he laid the groundwork for the vocation of laborers in his harvest, namely, you and me. And then, as now, being a laborer in the harvest, being an emissary for the kingdom requires a constant return to this heart of the gospel, such that, if you'll see, even in the verses immediately before the appointment of the 72, our Lord is actively vetting candidates. He's turning folks away left and right, like how Gideon whittled down his army to a pathetic 300. I'll follow you wherever you go. Will you? Our Lord seems to say. Because foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. As the Son of David, our Lord joyfully continues the Davidic legacy of making his home in homelessness, becoming the commander in exile, as we see in 1 Samuel 22, of everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul. Being called to follow him, another responds, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And another says, let me first say farewell to those at my home. In other words, I want to, I want to, let me wrap things up first. There's a few things I need to put in order. There's some loose ends I need to tie up. And then, Lord, I'm, I'm yours. Okay, just let me take care of these things. But to those called to follow, the Lord of the harvest says this, Leave the dead to bury their dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Who else in Scripture looked back? You remember Lot's wife looked back, and she got her reward. At this point, we might remember St. Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 7. It's a strange word, but bear with me. St. Paul says this, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. So from now on, let those of you who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of the world is passing away. In other words, the kingdom of God is near at the very gates. 
The point is, of course, not to twist these words to suit our flesh so that we abandon all our responsibilities, as, for example, some in the Thessalonian church did, in fact, do. And Paul had to remind them, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. Or as he wrote in 1 Timothy, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Twisting the scripture like that, that's flesh stuff. That's dead stuff. That is zombie town. We are alive now, beloved. We're not there anymore. All right? The point is this. Night is coming when no one can work. God's wrapping this up. He's setting all things to rights. The poor shall not always be forgotten. The patient hope of the meek shall not perish forever. Shall he bring to the point of uh, birth and not cause to bring forth? Here in Alabama, and I was born in Sheffield and spent most of my, my, my days here, we all patiently watch for when those leaves start to change, right? So that we can get out from under this oppressive heat that is not conducive for three layers of vestment. So we can get out from under this heat. We know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. Why don't we know how to interpret the present time? Awake, O sleepers. Arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Let us look carefully then how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So, having laid this groundwork for the vocation of laborers in his harvest, the Lord of the harvest appoints 72. Did you notice that number? 72. Why 72. Well, just as appointing the 12 seems to signify 12 new patriarchs for a new covenant, the number 70 or 72 resonates with the Old Testament in a number of places. It's the number of Jacob's descendants we see in Exodus 1, or the elders of Israel that were called up to Sinai with Moses to ratify the covenant. But also, interestingly, if you turn to Genesis 10, and you count up that table of nations, all the nations after Noah, and I, and I did it the other day, I counted them up, 70, 70, or in some versions of, of the Bible, 72. So, it's almost like the Lord has one mini apostle for each nation on planet earth. So while our Lord was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Israel is more than Judah, it turns out. Those ten lost tribes scattered among the nations would be brought back in by the gospel, regardless of their ethnicity, nationality, or pedigree. The children of Abraham, as we see in Romans 4, are those who share the faith of Abraham, whether Jew or Greek. There is no distinction, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. You just have to call on him. It doesn't matter who your dad was your granddad was, or what they did. You just have to call on him. But as we see in our Lord's instructions to the 72, not all, in fact, will call on him. Our Lord says, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Ironic, given that our Lord himself is the lamb by whose blood we conquer. He says, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. 
the 72 are instructed to make themselves completely dependent upon the hospitality of those they encounter in their mission, not to wander from house to house or church to church, treating the harvest like a shopping spree for their own gain, right? They are to be content with their wages and work signs of power in keeping with their powerful announcement, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But the 72 are informed ahead of time, some will not receive you. It is the nature of truth, as an internally consistent reality, to bring clarification to otherwise unclear situations. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth, the Son of God says in Luke 12, 51? No, I tell you, but rather division. God's word, God's logos, as we read in Hebrews 4.12, is alive, it's active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, sharper than any kitchen knife you've ever seen on any infomercial. It's able to clarify at an atomic level, laying bare the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This necessary division that truth brings is the great scandal of our time. The cultured despisers of our age have no patience for a binary system that, ironically, upon which all of their computers function. Um, Do not speak to us of accept or reject, they say. There is only affirmation. Do Do not speak to us of in or out, for we have long since dispensed with the quaint notion of walls or boundaries. As Deacon Zach preached so well last week, freedom is not given that we might explore the non-existent corners of an endless universe. But as C.S. Lewis of blessed memory wrote in The Abolition of Man, and this is so good, you cannot go, you cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It's good that the window should be transparent, right? Because the street or garden beyond it is opaque. How if you saw through the garden too? If you see through everything, then everything's transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. Though, however, speaking of seeing things, those of us who seek to uphold the important clarification of the truth of God must not unsee other human beings who happen to disagree with us. That's James and John calling down fire on the Samaritans again. That's St. John informing the Lord, Master, we saw some people casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop them because they don't follow with us. But Jesus gives this correction. Don't stop him. For the one who's not against you is for you. Beloved, the truth may be unforgiving, and its clarification, but the God of truth is quite forgiving. Otherwise, how would any of us be here? So again, the laborers of the harvest must always return again, excuse me, and again to the heart of the gospel, the heart of the Lord of the harvest. And as we saw in Galatians 6, we are to be working for restoration in a spirit of gentleness, lest we too should be tempted not forgetting that we also were saved not so long ago. Remembering, as Christ reminded the 72 in their debrief, their post-mission rendezvous, that we're not fighting Egyptians on chariots anymore, 
We're contending with rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, our Lord said. Behold, I've given you authority to tread not on other human beings, on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. As I draw to an end here, I have to admit that that last phrase caught me. Nothing shall hurt you. Nothing shall hurt me. Does that give you pause? It gave me pause. It's like that strange ending of Mark where our Lord all of a sudden starts talking about snakes and drinking poison and stuff. Nothing will hurt us. Well, as strange as it sounds, as disconnected as it seems to be with our personal experience, we are Christians in the Anglican tradition, and thus we are committed to sitting under Scripture, not spinning difficult passages away like little pieces of cotton candy. This is the Word of God. So we must conclude then that in some sense, these things that seem to hurt us, and goodness gracious, they feel like they are hurting us. These things that seem to hurt us are not endangering us. These things that feel like they hurt us are not endangering us. As St. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Likewise, in Philippians 1, St. Paul is able to speak confidently of his deliverance to the Philippian church, but at the same breath, to talk as if that deliverance might include his death. He says, It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So it seems like the deliverance is not um, his body not dying. That's not what he's talking about as deliverance. His deliverance is that he would successfully honor God in his body. As Christians, this is how we have to start thinking about success in our lives and what the point of this is. All of us will die. We will all put down our bodies and pick them back up again later. So our goal should not be to live forever, um, at least in the physical sense, but to have his life forever. But it's as if the enemy's weapons, as grievous and painful as the wounds are that they can inflict, cannot touch us behind the veil where the anchor holds. This is the curious inheritance of Yahweh's peculiar people, where as a royal priesthood we imitate our Savior, keeping one foot in this world, but the other in the next. And, we, and in that posture, we usher any with ears to hear that the kingdom of God has come near. And there's this bridge. Look, there's this bridge, the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which we can escape the wrath to come. Are you ushering people in that direction today? Well, beloved, may the Lord grant us the privilege of joyfully attending to his harvest, using any means possible to save some, for the glory of God and the salvation of the world.